Mark 13, 24 through 31. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will not pass away, or sorry, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us. Each week we gather together in the great hope that, as we just heard, that we are gathered around the word of the Lord. And we trust and depend on each week, not that each and every text is exactly the same amount of clarity to it, but that God's word is sufficient in itself to do its work. And so we turn to it each week in that great hope. Now, as we've been going through Mark 13, there may have been a few instances where the disciples who asked their question in verse 4 of when will these things be might have regretted asking the question. They start to hear from Jesus and some of the things that he is sharing with them, some of the things that he's telling them is not necessarily like great news for them. Probably doesn't hit their ears with a lot of excitement and joy. And the, the temple is going to be destroyed. There's, there's going to be persecutions, wars, and earthquakes. You're going to get dragged in front of people and persecuted. So there might have been a few times when they thought, maybe I shouldn't have asked that question. And Jesus' response reveals a lot of very different and difficult things for these disciples. It was likely tough to hear, and yet it's Jesus' kindness to them to respond, to give them this answer, and preparing them for what lay ahead for them. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's preparing his disciples. In the passage in front of us this morning, Jesus is preparing his disciples, not just for the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and the persecutions that come, but he's also preparing them for his triumph, for the time when he comes and he reigns and rules over all. Now, there are many notes that Jesus strikes as he's taught them in chapter 13. There's the note of judgment. There's the note of tribulation. There's the note of hard things in the world. But also we need to make sure that we don't miss the note of triumph that Jesus gives. Now, there are those who take Mark 13 as a chapter to be wholly futuristic, only looking forward to the future. Others take it as a chapter that only looks up to the events that lead up to 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And all of them have good plausible arguments, all are possibilities. And it reminds us of some of the tensions, especially with interpreting prophetic texts, that there's figurative language and then there's literalistic language, that there are future elements involved and that there are also present elements. 
that there are things that are particular to a time and place, and there are things that are a little bit more universal. There's some now things and some later things. There's some near things and some far things, and all are kind of intermingled. And all of this confronts readers with the need to approach, especially texts like Mark 13, again, with humility, trusting in God's Word to be sufficient, that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And so our approach so far has been to take Mark 13 on its own terms as best we can, to speak to its particularistic aspects and specific applications for those disciples and for Mark's audience, and then only then to us, without excluding as best we possibly could some sort of other more universal aspects and possibilities. So Jesus' teaching in Mark 13 is in response largely to the question that the disciples asked him in verse 4, tell us. When will these things be and what will be the sign that all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus' response had this repetition to it. He told them, be on your guard or beware. He says it three different times. Beware when wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and persecution, all of this come about. These things were to be for these disciples imminent signs. They were imminent in their lives. They were near. They were something that were going to happen to them and in their lifetime. And so what we've seen as we've, we've gone through this, verses kind of 14 through 23 had a sense of unity. They were linked. And so when we talked last week about the, the abomination of desolation, it was a sign for them to act, to start to take some action and to flee. And so the instruction of verse 14 and following for them to flee would only make sense if the, the disciples that were listening could actually identify this abomination of desolation and then take action in Judea to flee to the mountains. And so it has a specific context. But not just 14, all of verses 14 through 23 are linked. And they have this, this unity, this unity that's linking them to verses 1 through 13. So I think that we can treat verses 1 through 23 as a unit. Jesus says, when, in verse 4, he says, when in verse 7, there's when in verse 11, when in verse 14, there's beware in verse 5, beware in verse 9, beware in verse 23. There's these things that they ask about in verse 4, and Jesus seems to wrap that up in verse 23 when he says, I've told you all these things. So I think 1 through 23 we can take as a unit. And so, so far, Mark 13 has at least spoken to events that were leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. All that to say... And that when we go to verse 24 through 27, Mark seems to be indicating the beginning of a, of a new section that, that shifts, that no longer points to those type of events, but points to future events, events of the end. Here are some of the reasons we think this. Verse 24, he starts these, this sentence with the word but, which is a perfectly normal way for him to start, except for it's a different word than he normally uses to start sentences. 64% of Mark starts with this one little word in Greek, chi. It just means and. It just kind of moves the, the narrative forward. There's another word, uh, word that starts often, Mark starts sentences with, or is at the beginning of sections, and it's the other word for but, duh. <laughs> but now it is a different word for but. And it's a stronger word to bring out a little bit more contrast in the text. It's not Mark's norm. And so it could be indicating that Mark is trying to set this section aside for a little bit something different than what he's been saying in verses 1 through 23. So it could be that he's using a stronger word to signal to readers a, a change, in a sense, of subject matter, a shift. 
This section, 24 through 27, is also seeming to switch its audience. If you've noticed, all the way through, we're in 1 through 23 so far, it's been a lot of second person plural pronouns, right? You. And verbs are like that. Y'all do this. Y'all beware, is how we'd say it in Oklahoma, right? That's what he's been using so far. Well, in verse 24 through 27, there is no more second person pronouns. So there's no yous, no y'alls. He starts talking, as you'll see in verse 26, they, they will see. A very significant shift that's different from all of Mark 13. There are also other indicators that 24 through 27 deals with some sort of future event, the future, future coming of the Son of Man. And this we look to the text itself in verse 24. He says, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Now, in those days, most certainly give some sort of temporal time tie to what he said so far. But Mark is clearly separating them because he says, after that tribulation, you think, well, what tribulation? The the tribulation that he talked about in verse 18. That leads us, I think, to the conclusion that, that maybe verse 24 through 27 is speaking of a different future event. But then Mark goes on to describe this future event with all sorts of echoes from Old Testament prophets. He continues with verse 24. He says, The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Mark uses right here, Jesus' teaching is using cosmic language, language of the universe, of, of the things even in the heavens It's, in a sense, a reversal of the creation account, is it not? Where you see in creation, God is saying, let there be light, and the light obeys and listens to him, and it does exactly, and he places things in where he decides for them to go. And here, it's it's kind of going the other direction. The sun's not giving its light. It's an uncreation account. Indeed, Mark 13 is seen to be, in light of the pronounced judgment that we've seen so far, a kind of a reversal of the good that God had been working in the earth. The here is supposed to be in the temple, his people worshiping his name, and yet it was a place that was, seemed to be full of life, but indeed was dead. This cosmic language is kind of capturing the idea that there should be light, but there's no light. There's a reversal of creation, an indication that judgment is upon them. And I think that judgment best describes the context for all those Old Testament texts that are alluded to here. There are echoes in Jesus' words in 24 and 25 from Ezekiel 32, or Joel 2 and Joel 3, from Amos chapter 8. But I think the closest parallels come to us from Isaiah, the first one being in Isaiah chapter 13. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, this is what the prophet Isaiah says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, and the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Verse 25 from Mark seems to echo closely what we see in Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4 says this, that all the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. 
And the prophets, they, they use that cosmic type language often. Now, there are several allusions that you could look to from the Old Testament prophets where they use the heavens and the, the lights and the stars as some sort of language to speak of, of major upheavals in God's creation, of, of major reversals, we could say, of what was happening. A lot of them speak of judgment, specifically on nations and kings, where there's these great kings that are reigning and ruling over certain things, and God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to overturn that. And do something different there. So a lot of this cosmic language speaks of something major happening in God's creation, of great reversals, and mostly they're full of God's judgment. And so Jesus alludes to these texts with cosmic language to point to, I think, his future decisive intervention in history where there's going to be major upheaval and a great reversal. The prophets spoke figuratively, poetically, not always literalistically. And so maybe Jesus does that too. So in what way the sun is not going to give its light and the moon and the stars are going to give their signal, how they're going to be darkened is, I think, mysterious to us. But as one commentator says, in a word, all the creatures above and below will be, as it were, heralds to summon men. All creation that is presently, as Paul says, groaning in birth pains, is going to one day make some sort of different commotion that's summoning us that something great is happening, a great upheaval, a major reversal. It's pointing to Jesus' return. So rather not to expect the heavenly lights to literally go out, I think is mysterious. But what is not mysterious in this text is Jesus' coming. Verse 26 says, And then they, again, they will, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Jesus leaves the audience a little bit open-ended here, does he not, with the they, and they're going to see it. So along with the, the cosmic language, along with the, the heavens summoning all of creation, what we have here is no secret coming. They will see it. It will be known. Again, Jesus alludes to another Old Testament text as he says, that the Son of Man is coming, he alludes to Daniel chapter 7. We've looked at this before as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, but Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13, says this, I saw in the night, the, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel's version of the Son of Man is a Son of Man who has authority. He has power. He has dominion. He has a kingdom full of people that he reigns and he rules, and it's not going to be taken away. It's an eternal reign, an eternal dominion, an eternal man with authority. And in Mark... And in all the Gospels, that title, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite self-designation. He loves to use it of himself. And so Jesus here, when he says that the Son of Man is coming, is again speaking of his own return. That the Son of Man is coming again is Jesus speaking of his future reign, future rule, future kingdom, future glory. That the Son of Man is coming, as he says in Mark 13, in the clouds with great power and glory is astounding to us. It's astounding given what we know about the Son of Man that Jesus has already shown us. 
Do you remember what Jesus said about the Son of Man in Mark chapter 8? Again, referencing himself in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. Or he says in chapter 9, verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Or in chapter 10, verse 33, it says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Or in chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man, he came not to be served, but to serve. And to do what? Give his life as a ransom for many. And here's what we know about the Son of Man then. Here's what Jesus has taught them so clearly. The Son of Man is going to come and he's going to be handed over. He's going to be killed as a ransom for many. And yet here he says that the Son of Man is going to come in power and in glory. How in the world does that happen? Here in Mark 13, 26, as in Daniel, there's a coming in the clouds. It's not an ascension. It's coming down from the heaven. It's coming from above. In other words, the Son of Man who suffers, who dies, overcomes death. He mentioned that as he said that the Son of Man would be delivered and killed. He said he's also going to rise after three days. He's overcome death. He's raised. And then after he's raised, he comes again. That's the Son of Man. Even the the cosmic language can't quite capture the the greatest reversal that the universe has ever known. That the same Son of Man that's delivered over and killed is the same Son of Man who comes with the clouds with great power and glory. This reversal from being handed over and killed to being risen and coming is not one that the Son of Man enjoys alone. Listen to verse 27. And then he will send out the angels... And gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. That the Son of Man makes sure to get all who are his from every single corner of the known universe. They might be far away, but they are certainly not lost to him. And then we ask, well, then who are his elect? The New Testament is clear. It's those who are united to Christ by faith. It's those who have this vital relationship with Jesus as if a a branch to a vine, that everything that they need flows from him to them, that he is their vital connection. Or we could put it in Mark's terms. It's those who have lost their life for the sake of gaining it in him, who've turned away from other things to follow after Jesus. That's who are Elect. They are those that God chose, drew, unblinded, redeemed by his grace, and those who he will gather from the four winds of all of creation. And with all that Jesus had said concerning the, the temple and how it was going to be destroyed, and Jerusalem, and how they need to flee, this regathering that he is talking about here would have had a massive impact, I think, on these disciples. Think about the the, the massive statement that Jerusalem and the temple were going to be destroyed. This is the very center of Jewish religious life. This is where you come to meet with God. 
This is where you come to meet with your family, the, the people of God, the family of God. And Jesus is saying to them, it's going to be destroyed. There's not even going to be one stone left. They're going to be scattered. They're to leave. They're to get out of there. But then Jesus says, I'm going to regather you. <laughs> Those who are mine, though every stone in the temple was going to be thrown down, you still have a solid rock that's going to gather you together. Now, perhaps we can identify with the disciples at this point as they've heard about the, the tumultuous time that's coming to them, the destruction of the center of, of their very life in the destruction of the temple. They thought likely that, man, everything is changing. Everything is uncertain. Everything that we've known and loved, it seems to be shaking before us. The foundations of this life that we've built trying to follow after God seems to be being overturned. And what we instinctively all do when it seems like everything around us is crumbling is we try to grab for something solid to hang on to. Perhaps we grab for it in political power. We might seek some sort of financial security to make us safe or, or maybe some comfort. We, we reach out for comfort in relationships or, or control through having enough data and information downloaded to us so that we know what we need to know in order to move through things safely. But here's what Jesus is doing is he's giving his disciples something solid to grab a hold of, something sturdy for them. That when everything else around them seems like it's crumbling down, as it likely would have for these disciples, that they can trust and hang on to something more substantial. And it's not the temple. It's not some practice that they need to do religiously. It's not something in the world that becomes their security and their hope. It's Jesus himself coming with power, coming with glory. Jesus is saying that he's the new center He's the one that they need most. He is the one that they're going to need to hang on to. He's the new focal point. He's the one that they're to find their all in. And Jesus is the place that all are again going to meet. The focal point of all one day will be him and they will be gathered to him. You see, the elect, the, the global family of those who have trusted in Jesus are scattered. They're scattered over time, right, with different time zones, different eras, scattered even location-wise all across the planet. It's now all over these nations that the gospel is going forward. They're, they're scattered in those ways, but they're also scattered in other ways. Divisions, or persecutions, or even death. But one day, the one with all dominion with all power, the king of the kingdom will come with great power and glory. And those who are his, they won't have to make a pilgrimage to him. They aren't going to have to go visit some sort of religious and holy site. He's going to find them. And he's going to bring them to himself. He's going to find his people. He's going to gather them all around. And church, this is our hope. And Jesus states it with some simplicity, doesn't he? Aren't we thankful for that in this chapter? It's a little bit confusing that Jesus states this with some simplicity. He doesn't give details. He doesn't give a timeline. He doesn't say, this is how it will exactly work out. He says, the Son of Man is coming with power and glory. He's just coming. It's as if Jesus is kind enough to just be careful with his words to make sure that he doesn't cloud our vision too much that we don't have certainty in that reality. 
that we don't have awe and wonder in that reality. One commentator sums it up well when he says that it is equally important to note what this glorious vision of the future does not affirm. There is no mention of a millennium, no new Jerusalem, no rebuilt temple, no restoration of Israel or the state of Israel, no battle of Armageddon, and no hints of how and when Christ will return. About all these things, the text is silent. All these incidentals, and I love that he calls them that, yield to the preeminent truth of the power and glory of Jesus' future coming and the promise that his elect will be gathered to him. This preview of the future ought not lure us to calculate when Christ will return, nor to fear what will happen, but to know that he will come to claim his own. His coming is his promise, and the gathering of believers to him is our hope. Is your hope his coming? Is that what you're placing your hope in this morning? Does that coming of the Son of Man with power and glory lead you to awe and wonder and worship and confidence? If not, then we're not hearing Jesus' words rightly. Or perhaps we're holding whatever view of that return wrongly. It should lead us to great hope. See, Jesus is preparing all of his disciples for that coming even by excluding some details for us so that we might just have confidence in him, so that all our hope would be fixed on not some sort of view that we're holding on to, but all of our hope and all of our confidence would be fixed on him, the Son of Man. Well, next, Jesus returns to preparing those disciples in this question for what's ahead in their lifetime. So when we turn to verses 28 through 31, I want us to notice another shift. There's the return again of the, the second person, plural, Verbs, y'all do something, and pronouns. He returns to that in verses 29, or 28 through 31. He uses again these things. You see that in verse 29 and 30? These things, which again we think is a reference to the, the things that they asked about in verse 4, seems to connect. Verse 29 he says, when you see, seems to be a, a very close mirror of verse 14, of when you see the abomination of desolation. And then we add in there this generation that he says in verse 30. Now, all this seems to stack some evidence that Jesus is again returning in verses 28 through 31 to events that these disciples would, would actually experience, leading up into the destruction of the temple and destruction of Jerusalem. And so it seems like Jesus said, took a quick break for them, and he, he lets them soar in their minds and their hearts with hope and confidence of the coming Son of Man, and then gently and lovingly brings them back down to the ground. He even does it with a, a very ground analogy, an illustration, with fig trees. Listen to verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now, fig trees would have been around them, likely, as they're sitting there talking with Jesus. He probably could have pointed to one. Here's a fig tree. So it literally brings them back down to the ground. And fig trees, he says, can be used to announce the change of season. When you see the leaves, there's likely a change of season. It tells us, at least, there's an indicator that summer is near, that a season is coming upon us. And I think Jesus uses this illustration to recall this fig tree that we saw in chapter 11. You remember as Jesus is approaching 
Jerusalem and the temple, he, he sees this fig tree and he goes up to it thinking he's going to get some figs from it and there's no figs. It looked like there would be, but it was full of death instead. And so he curses this tree, then he walks into the temple and then we see the fig tree again. Seems as if Jesus using this fig tree example is recalling that as a picture of judgment on the temple. He again is preparing the disciples for what's to come in Jerusalem, what's to come in the temple by saying when you see some signs that I'm telling you about in chapter 13, you know that these things are near. And again, verse 29 and verse 14 seem to mirror one another. And he says these things in response, I think, to the question that the disciples had in verse 4. So I think that these verses are likely speaking of the nearness of the abomination of desolation, the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the persecutions and trials and tribulations that they are going to go under leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And you add that with verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now that Jesus is speaking of the nearness of this destruction and not his future coming in the clouds is obscured, I think, a little bit with the translation in front of us. In verse 29 it says, He you know that he is near. Now, there's nothing wrong with them putting he there. Some other translations don't have he in it, but ours that we're using primarily does. Nothing wrong with it, but there's no explicit reference to it. There's nothing that we can say, well, that is what is happening here. It's just building off of the third person singular verb, which if you remember, could be he, she, or it. Could be any of those, could be references here. So the question is, does it refer to a he or does it refer to an it? Some take it as it refers to Jesus. But I would just say that I think that seems a bit point, pointless when you read it this way, right? He says, you know, he said, verse 26, when you see the coming Son of Man, and then you, you take that and you read that into this verse. When you see him, know that he's near. Well, when you see him, you, you, you're going to know he's near. So it seems like Taking it as he, as in Jesus, seems a little bit pointless. I think that the best fit within the context seems to take it as either he, if you think of a personal manifestation of the abomination of desolation, or an it, as in the destruction of Jerusalem, the events that Jesus has been describing. What we know for sure is that whatever way we take it, whatever one's view is on these words, my view on these words, will certainly pass away. But Jesus reminds us, verse 31... Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But with the perishable temple as the main topic, with the allusion to the, the heavens and their upheaval and falling mentioned, with even the, the tenuous life of the disciples who are going to be delivered over and some of them are going to be killed, he said, with all of that in view, Jesus, again, gives him something more durable. He gives him something more durable than the heavens, than the earth. He gives them and says to them, my words will not fade. I mean, to a generation that was going to see and experience all sorts of stuff, Jesus makes sure that they have something that will hold, something sturdy, Something reliable, something to cling to, something to build a life on, something to live a life by. His words. And it seems as if they did. Right, a couple of these disciples that were listening to Jesus' teaching, Peter, 
John? Hey, we have some record of what they said after this, do we not? It seems like we, we understood what, what they did with these words. They, they got busy. They, they started preaching the gospel. They, they started making sure that they were impacting nations, sending people out and, and working so that people would understand the words of Jesus clearly. They wrote letters so that people could get it that were scattered all over the place. It's interesting to see what they did with this. Here's at least part of what they did with it. If you look in 1 Peter, again, Peter was one of the four that was listening to this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, here's what Peter says. Again, including the words that would not fade away. He says in verse 23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed. He saw lots of things that were perishable. But he says, You've been born again of something imperishable through the living and abiding, what? Word of God. Now, Peter was trusting in that living and abiding Word of God. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and it's all its glory like the flower of grass. And the grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter understood Jesus' words. And he even said, hey, wait, he was also speaking to us through this other prophet too. And what he said in that prophet and what he said to us in person, we know to be true that this word remains forever. And that's the good news that was preached to you, that you can have life with God through the Son of Man. What did John do with it? You skip over to John, 1 John. Chapter 2, here's what he says in verse 24. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. These words don't fade. These words remain. Let it abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. There might have been a few times in the midst of their lives and, and maybe even in this this teaching from Mark 13, where the disciples regretted asking their question. Like, man, I, it's too much information, Jesus. I didn't want to know that I was going to be dragged before courts and persecuted and that the temple was going to be destroyed and all that we've known in life was going to be overturned. But there's concrete evidence in their writing that later on, some point in the future, they cherished what Jesus taught them. They wanted to make sure that they and others tried to abide in it. So much so that it changed everything they said and did, and it made them look forward. Listen to Peter's words again. In chapter 1, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Or we can hear the words of John from the end of Revelation, do you remember? He says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. To which John adds, A men. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, what are we building our lives on? What are we living on? That matters because some words fade. Things around us are perishable. But are we building our lives, are we living our lives on the words 
of Jesus that don't perish or fade, so much so that we could add our voice to John's voice and so, amen, come Lord Jesus. Here's what we know. The Son of Man will come with great power and glory. He will be triumphant. Let's be ready to join him. Would you bow in prayer with us? Let's pray. Father, our hope is your return. Jesus, we long for that day. We pray that more than anything else, God, that would be our chief motivation to be on mission, to do the things that you've commanded us to do in the meantime to trust you, God, to hear your word, to receive it, to obey it. And Father, that same hope that we have that's rooted in the return of our Lord should also create a sense of of urgency, God, in us as we look around, as we see so many that are unprepared, Lord, to meet you. Who for that day, Lord, it will be terrifying and awful. It will not be a good day for those who've been separated from you and who do not understand what it takes, God, to be reunited. And we just pray, God, that as your people, we would live in such a way that would just testify to the power in our lives that you've given us, the spirit, the truth that governs us, Lord. Help us to live in such a way that points to the hope that we have that transcends all other things that the world puts hope in, that those who don't know you, Lord, would see, and that you by your Spirit would draw them and give them that same hope, Father, that we have. We're so grateful, God, that your word cannot be shaken, that your promises cannot be undone, and that one day we will see you face to face. We thank you for doing what was necessary, God, to make that happen, for putting your life in a human body, for putting it on the cross, for taking the punishment, for the sin, Lord, that we've committed, for living the life that we could never live and willingly taking the punishment, God, that every single one of us deserve. We thank you, God, for being so good and so kind. May our hope rest in you and your return. In Christ's name we pray, amen.